Hey y'all, I'm Elisa. And I'm annoyed. <laughs> Welcome to Watch for Deer. So we have a live studio audience with us here today. So this should go really, really well. I don't what feel do like think? it will go well. I feel like this is going to be a crap show. It's already been a crap show. <laughs> it's only took us 20 minutes to get started. It's, if you all hear anybody in the background, just ignore them. Just ignore them. Yeah, it's the husbands and and Jennifer. <laughs> She's like... <laughs> And that Jennifer, was kind of, the way you said that, the way you said you're like, and Jennifer. And Jennifer. It's just, it's just Jennifer. Well, if she'd get over here, she could defend herself. Come on. <laughs> she says she's good. She's like, I'm good. Oh, okay. I want to tell you something that happened to me. Okay, let's go. So it's been a while that this happened, but it is kind of funny. And I was thinking about the other day. So I used to work with this woman named Heather and she was an older lady. She's real pretty. She had long, like blondish gray hair. He just got to work with me here because I was still out of breath because of COVID. Mm. And uh, anyways, <clears throat> I didn't work at Walmart anymore, but she was walking in front of me. And I knew I knew that she was walking in front of me. I thought she knew that I was walking behind her. Anyways, we're walking down the aisle. She kind of stops and I stop. And I'm, I don't know, I'm like 10 feet from her. And she stops in front of me, hocks up her leg, and rips the loudest fart <laughs> that I have ever heard. And then she turns around, and she's mortified. She thought I was her daughter, <laughs> and it was not. Like, I was like, oh, my God. And I went, I didn't work with her long enough or friends with her long enough. To, to where you could fart on her I don't or feel be like around it, her. Right. And I was thinking about that the other day. Yeah, she did that. She <laughs> farted on me. Like, what it was bad. Jerk. Yeah, it was bad. <laughs> All right. So today, our case is a doozy. It is one of the more popular cases in history, and up until recently, was unsolved. Just as recent as 2021, the identity of the Zodiac Killer was a mystery. Oh, God. Is that what we're doing? We now have a name of who the suspected Zodiac really was. Oh, and really? I'm not so sure that I'm convinced. Will you be? Will I be convinced? Will you be convinced? I don't know. The one you told me yesterday was horrific. It was a really good story. It was not a good story. I mean, not a good story. say that's a good story. It was a good episode. Negative? It was a tragic story. It was terrible. Okay. It was terrible. So the sources I used for this was ZodiacKiller.com. Um, I used two books. Both of them were by Robert Gray Smith. Both of them were excellent books. So let me ask you this. Why are you all of a sudden now telling me your sources? Are you afraid we're going to get... Are we getting sued? I mean, we may have got a letter. Did we get a letter? No, we didn't get a you letter. You <laughs> I just thought it would be nice just because these books are really good. So if you want to read up more on Zodiac, you can read Zodiac by Robert Gray Smith or his other book called Zodiac Unmasked by Robert Gray Smith. Let's start at the beginning, shall we? I've heard of Zodiac Killer before, but I honestly don't know. No, I don't know anything about it. I know, didn't he send encrypted letters or something or yep. something like that? Yeah. That's all I know. So well, I don't actually know this story. Buckle in, baby, because it's a doozy. Click, click. There's my seatbelt. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, okay. So the first one we're going to talk about is Sherry Jo Bates. Now, she was not a confirmed victim, but she was suspected that to be one of his victims, okay? Mm -hmm. So, on October 30th of 1966, Sherry Jo Bates, who was an 18-year-old student at River, 
Riverside City College spent the evening at the campus library annex until it closed at 9 p.m. Now, neighbors reported hearing a scream around 11.30 p.m. Bates was found dead the next morning. In a short distance from the library, between two abandoned houses slated to be demolished for campus renovations. Now, she had been brutally beaten and stabbed to death. The wires in her Volkswagen uh, distributor cap had been pulled out, and a man's Timex watch with a torn wristband was found nearby. Now, this watch also, um, I read in the book, had paint splatters on it, so keep that in mind. We'll try to keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. It had paint splatters on the watch. But honestly, I'm trying to dump everything out of my mind that I hear from you. (laughs) So I'll try to hold on to it. Keep it. Just hold on to it. Okay. Paint Paint splatters on the on the splattered watch. watch. Yep. The watch had stopped at twelve twenty four, but police believed the attack had occurred much earlier. Now one month later on November twenty ninth, nearly identical typewritten letters were mailed to the Riverside police titled The Confession. The author claimed responsibility for the Bates murder, providing details of the crime that were not released to the public. The author warned that Bates, quote, is not the first and she will not be the last. (laughs) In December of 1966, a poem was discovered carved into the bottom side of a desk in the the college library, titled Sick of Living Slash Unwilling to Die. The poem's language and handwriting resembled that of the Zodiac's letters. It was signed with what were assumed to be the initials R.H. During the 1970 investigation, Sherwood Morrill, California's top question documents examiner, expressed his opinion that the poem was written by the Zodiac. On April 30, 1967, exactly six months after the Bates murder, her father, the Press Enterprise, and the Riverside Police all received nearly identical letters. In handwritten scrawl, the press, enterprise, and police copies read, Bates had to die, there will be more, with a small scribble at the bottom that resembled the letter Z. Bates' father's copy read, she had to die, there will be more, this time without the Z signature. So he sent three letters, one to the dad and then to the press, um, and then to the Riverside Police, but he only put the Z on, on the one letter wonder why he did but, so the z does does that actually did he call himself the zodiac killer or is that like some well this this was prior keep in mind this is a victim they have never confirmed that he killed sherry joe bates so why are we this is about all her? speculation but there's strong evidence that suggests that he killed her okay all right next victim ray davis Ray Davis was recently divorced and living with his brother in Oceanside, California. Davis was a cab driver for the Checker Cab Company. On Tuesday, April 10, 1962, at 11.20 p.m., Davis radioed into his cab company that he had just picked up a fare and was headed to a location in South Oceanside. That was the last time that anyone would ever speak to Ray Davis again. See, I was thinking that the Zodiac Killer only killed women. That's how little I know about this. Well, I'm about to school you. Okay. 20 pages worth of school. Okay. Do you hear that clicking in the background, people? Mm -hmm. That is my dog playing with a pop tab. Aww. Jennifer. It's little Teddy. All right. You keep reading, and I'm going to uh, grab that pop tab real fast. (laughs) Keep reading. All right. 
The next morning, a classy upscale neighborhood called St. Malo, the body of Davis would be discovered in an alley with a gunshot wound to the back and one to the back of his head. He had been shot twice from the back seat of his own cab and dumped in the alley. His cab would later be found on 400 Pacific Street. The investigators determined that Davis had not been robbed and they were never able to establish a motive for the killing. Now, here's the weird part. Prior to the murder of Davis, the killer had called police in advance and warned them that he would soon be committing a baffling crime. Soon after Ray's murder, the police received another phone call from the killer. This time, the caller was threatening to target a random bus driver. While this case has never been officially linked to the Zodiac, there are several similarities. Shooting the cab driver to death in the wealthiest neighborhood of a city. Calling the police to take credit for the crime. Contacting the police to warn of future murders. Openly stating his intent was to baffle the police. Making a bus the subject of the death threat. Displaying no obvious motive for the murder and using both a 22 weapon and a long rifle ammo in the same killings. I mean, I feel like that's pretty specific, Elisa. Now, let's talk about what most consider his first two official like this is this is when it all goes down. This is when like the letters and everything starts with with this, okay? I thought the letters already started, but they never did they confirm. They never confirmed that the letters that Sherry Joe's family and them got it was from the Zodiac. It was never proven, but it was speculated. Okay. So, this is Faraday and, and Jensen. Friday night, December 20th, 1968. 16-year-old Betty Lou Jensen was out on her very first date. She had never been allowed to go out before, so she was excited when 17-year-old David Faraday picked her up in his mother's brown and beige 1961 Rambler station wagon. Well, David was a scholar, a top student at Vallejo High, and an athlete. He had been seeing Betty every day, even though she lived across town. Betty, too, was a hardworking, studious lady and had a spotless reputation. At about 10.15 p.m., David drove the station wagon out to Lover's Lane on Lake Herman Road. There, he parked the car, locked the doors, and turned the heater on. After 11 p.m., a car turned down the bend and pulled up next to them on their right about 10 feet away. Now, it's believed at this time the person in the car rolled down their window and requested David and Betty get out of the car. Well, they didn't know who it was, so of course they refused. At that time, the man opens his door, steps out, and then pulls out a gun that was concealed under a windbreaker-type jacket. Now, Betty's window was down, but instead of approaching the car there, he began to stalk around the vehicle. He aimed his pistol at the right rear window off-center and fired a shot at the car. Glass shattered, and he moved to the left rear wheel housing and fired again. According to the City of Riverside Police report, Jensen exited the vehicle first to flee. As David began to slide across the seat to flee, the suspect leaned into the window that was down, placed the, bull, placed the gun right behind the boy's upper left ear, and pulled the trigger. The bullet angled horizontally and left behind powder burns. Now, you'd think that this would have killed him instantly, but he lay barely breathing until a passerby would report the shooting. 
Betty screamed and took off running. Racing after her, the suspect extended the gun about 10 feet behind her and fired the gun five times. He hit her in a tight pattern in the upper right portion of her body. She fell dead. David would arrive at the hospital only to be pronounced DOA at 12.05 a.m. So how did they know that's exactly what happened if both people are dead? Yeah. That's just speculation. That's investigation. Mm. Where they found the bullets in the car. So they were just... They dug okay. five bullets out of her. I mean, I know they know how many out times of his brain. she was... Yeah, how many times she was shot and yeah. he was shot. Just, it was, sounded so specific to me, like... Yeah. The well, left. I mean, the tire the tire marks that pull up, you can track his movements by the tire marks, by mm-hmm. footprints and things like that. Oh, You'd okay. be a terrible investigator. Yeah. Yes, I would. You're right about that. You're disappointing me. <laughs> and you're scaring me. <laughs> The weapon and ammo used was a 22 caliber semi-automatic pistol and a Winchester Western Super X copper-coated long rifle. There was no indication of robbery, no indication of sexual assault, no reason why. While there were no witnesses, there were several vehicles that were seen in the area prior to Stella Borges discovering the crime scene. These murders rocked the community. Now, in 1990, Detective John Lynch stated he believed that Faraday had known about a local drug deal and had been talking openly about it and who was involved. Other sources speculated that the murders were not done by the Zodiac as there were no letters or no phone calls until months later. However, when the Zodiac finally did take credit for the murders of Faraday and Jensen, he told them about many details that only the killer could have actually known. The secluded area where they were killed still hasn't changed much at all. So, do you think that maybe the reason that they don't want to link all of these together is because they don't want to admit that they have a serial killer on their hands? I mean, it could be. And cause everybody mass to panic. panic. Yeah, cause it mass panic. Be. It could be. This was back, you know, in the 60s. Mm. So, our next case is Darlene Farron. How many people did he kill? How many are we going to go through on this? So, he killed five people. That they know of. For certain. There was a couple that got away, Mm -hmm. that lived. Oh, I mean, you're telling the whole story now. Maybe you should just keep reading. I shouldn't have asked that. Because you're actually telling me, don't, you're not supposed to. You're just, well, I mean, you can, you can, you're supposed to say, wait. Just hold your horses. Okay. <laughs> Just zip it. Okay. Okay. Darlene Farron was 138 pound, 5 foot 5, with light brown hair and blue eyes. Darlene was just 22, but she looked more like 17 with her cute <laughs> little braces on. She worked at a restaurant as a server, and people would wait in line just so she could take care of her, of them. <clears throat> Co-worker Bobby Ramos said that she was always so friendly. She would chat with anyone. Bobby had warned her that she shouldn't talk to everyone because not everyone was a friend. Darlene was a happy, friendly person, an extrovert, and Bobby recalled a conversation she and Darlene had after the Faraday and Jensen murders. Darlene knew them both, more so Betty than, uh, than Faraday. 
Darlene had told her she wasn't ever going out to Lake Herman Road again. It made her feel like all eerie and weird. Darlene was married to her second husband, Dean, at the time. Her and Dean had a beautiful baby girl, Dina. Over the course of a few months, Darlene had received a couple of mysterious packages at her home. Bobby said that she thought they were from Darlene's <coughs> ex-husband, Jim, who Darlene was very scared of. I don't want to pass judgment or anything, but you're telling me this 22-year-old girl has an ex-husband, which yes. is fine. It's I'm the just 60s. Making, I'm just making sure that I'm correct. You are correct. Okay, go on. She is 22. Yep. Okay. She has an ex-husband. All right. That's <clears throat> all I want to know. Yep. Confirmed. Um, Bobby recalled one of the reasons that they kicked Darlene and Jim out of the shared apartment was because Jim had owned a twenty-two, and she wasn't down with that since Jim was a weird guy. Now, Darlene was anything but faithful. She had many friends. Darlene, what are you doing? Even as a married woman, she had many friends. Darlene. She seemed to have a creeper, too. You took you took vows, Darlene. Friends and family can recall a gentleman very well-dressed, stocky, curly, wavy, dark hair. Remember that. I'm still trying to remember the paint on the watch. Well, see, you did good. You remember. But now you're telling me to remember curly, dark hair. Do we need a whiteboard? I need something. We're gonna, we're, can we get a whiteboard? <laughs> <laughs> can we get a list? <laughs> As you say it, like these people are actually going to move. And they're not moving, so apparently okay. we can't get a list. All right, I've got one on one side of my brain, okay. one on the other, and that's all I have. Okay, so very well-dressed, stocky, curly, wavy, dark hair. He also wore dark rimmed glasses, and they said Darlene was always so terrified of him and would warn her girlfriends and family to stay away and not talk to him. Now, this guy drove a white car. Do you want me to remember that, too? Sure. I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) Friday, July 4th, 1969, Darlene picks up one of the Magoo twins, Mike, and they head out. As they pull out on the road, a white car falls in behind them. She speeds up. The car follows. Darlene turns, trying to lose the car. Eventually, they are herded approximately two miles from where the double murders of Faraday and Jensen happened. Darlene flies into the lot and hits a log. The car pulls in behind them and stops briefly. Oh, God. And then it speeds away. Hmm. It leaves. Okay. Only to come back oh, in less gosh. than five minutes. <laughs> Sorry. (laughs) Come back less than five minutes later. As the car pulls in, it pulls up to the left back corner of her car, blocking her in like a cop would do. I know exactly where this is going. The guy gets out and comes towards them. Now, Mike recalls telling her to get her ID out because he thinks it's the cops because the way that, you know, they they followed him and then the way he pulls in. So, you're telling me Mike lives. I'm just saying, foreshadowing here. And the Your investigative of- skills are getting better. Okay, go ahead. Okay. The guy walks up to the car window and shines a bright light in their eyes. Pop, pop. Mike feels his blood begin to flow. Mm. The suspect fires more rounds. The, at the what? Ca- the suspect. Mm, it sounds like you said suspect. <laughs> Just go ahead, but you said suspect. The suspect fires mm. more rounds at the couple and Mike sees Darlene's body slump forward. Mm. She was hit a total of nine times, two in her right arm, two in her left arm, and five bullets in the right side of her back, piercing her lung and the left ventricle of her heart. Mike reaches down and grabs the door handle to flee, only to realize the handle's missing. 
The suspect walks back to his car as Mike cries in agony. The man stops and turns towards Mike, in which he can see this man clearly. He's a heavy-set, stocky man with a military-style haircut with curly, light brown hair. The man walks back to finish the job. He fires two more shots at Mike. Mike flails and climbs into the back of the car with his legs flopping. The shooter fires two more shots into Darlene, turns and walks back to his car, and drives off. Now, Mike was severely wounded. He was hit in the left leg, the right arm, the chest, and the neck. He could feel the blood trickling down his cheek. The bullet had ripped a hole through his tongue and jawbone. He tried to call for help, but could only gurgle. On the ground outside of the car, he could hear Darlene moan. Three teenagers looking for some friends happened to stumble upon the horrific scene. They rushed to call the police and report the shooting. The police arrive, and Darlene is barely breathing. They rush her to the hospital, but she is later reported as DOA at 12.48 a.m. The cops find a 9mm or a 38 caliber slug. Now, at 12.40 a.m., a man calls the switchboard. I want to report a double murder. If you go one mile east on Columbus Parkway to the public park, you will find kids in a brown car. They were shot with a 9mm Luger. I also killed those kids last year. Goodbye. And hangs up. Call drops. This call the police would trace was made directly across from Dean and Darlene's home. August 1st, 1969, the San Francisco Chronicle would receive the first letter from the killer. He had sent letters and coded messages to the San Francisco Examiner and the Vallejo Times Herald as well. The letter he sent read, Is this the one, though, where the letter, they do decipher it, but it kind of looks like hieroglyphics? Mm Mm-hmm. Is that what this yes. is? So yes. you're going to read so, what yeah. it is deciphered as? Yeah. Well, this is just, this letter here is just a letter. Just a normal so written letter. So it's not like the This hiero- is not, this, it's coming. Okay. It's coming. Okay. You're you're talking about the ciphers. Yeah. I don't the, know what I'm talking This is just about. a letter that he, he writes okay. to I'm, the examiner in the Times. I wasn't even sure if that was what this was. Or yep. Not. It is. Dear Editor, this is the murderer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman and the girl on the 4th of July near the golf course in Vallejo. To prove I killed them, I shall state some facts which only I and the police know. Christmas. Brand name of ammo, Super X. Ten shots were fired. The boy was on his back with his feet to the car. The girl was on her right side, feet to the west. 4th of July. The girl was wearing patterned slacks. The boy was also shot in the knee. The brand name of ammo was Western. Here's a part of cipher, and the two parts of this cipher are being mailed to the editors of the Vallejo Times and SF Examiner. I want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper. In this cipher is my identity. If you do not print this cipher by the afternoon of Friday, 1st of August, 69, I will go on a kill rampage Friday night. I will cruise around all weekend killing lone people in the night, then move on to kill again until I end up with a dozen people over the weekend. Do do they warn the people about this? Like, do they tell the people about this note and that maybe they shouldn't be out alone? 
so so not or out at all not yet it takes it takes them a moment to decide to print this and then it's in the papers for everybody to read but they don't actually come out and say hey stay in hide in stay inside don't go out you know there's a crazy killer on the loose do they tell though in the paper that what he just said there that if they didn't print that that he was going to kill a dozen people over the weekend no like he says this that i just read his letter like Mm -hmm. that's what he said in his letter yeah that was verbatim Mm mm-hmm now, on Sunday, August 3rd, 1969, the Examiner Chronicle printed the ciphers to all the killer's letters, and for the first time, it was all printed together. Donald Jean Harden and his wife Betty would crack the code together in 20 hours. Naval Intelligence would later confirm this. The deciphered code read, I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all. To kill something gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part of it is that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise and they have killed will be my slaves. I will not give you my name because you will try and slow me down or stop my collecting of slaves for afterlife. He then signs the letter in the cipher you know, which to date, that's yet to be cracked, revealing his name. And it's potentially or potentially an anagram. So at the very bottom, and I've got pictures of this too, I'm going to post. It's all, it's to all in it. here. Even if you have to pause it, I need to see it because. It's all in here. I'm telling you, this is a great book. It's a good book. It's not a good book. It's a good book. How it's can a really you say good that's book. a good book? It's a good book. There's something wrong with you. Let's see? Right here. What is it? I hear ciphers. But the first letters is through the front. Dead space. Dead space. Dead space. Start reading. (laughs) Shut up. Dead space. Shut up. Thursday, August 7th, 1969, he writes again, this time in response to Chief Stilt's request to write another letter proving he was the killer. So after they print these letters, this chief of police goes on, well, he's, he's thinking at this time, this is just some random dude. He just messing with everybody you know what i mean just messing with everybody so he calls out this killer well if you are the killer write something else so he responds dear editor this is the zodiac speaking in answer to your asking for more details about the good times i have had in vallejo i shall be very happy to supply even more material By the way, are the police having a good time with the code? If not, tell them to cheer up. When they do crack it, they will have me. On the 4th of July, I did not open the car door. The window was rolled down already. The boy was originally sitting in the front seat when I began firing. When I fired the first shot at his head, he leaped backwards at the same time, spoiling my aim. He ended up on the back seat, then in the floor in... Then the floor in the back thrashing out very violently with his legs. That's how I shot him in the knee. I did not leave the scene of the killing with squealing tires and racing engine as described in the Vallejo paper. I drove away quiet, slowly, as not to draw attention to my car. The man who told the police that my car was brown was, and I'm not going to say this this word, was a black man, about 40 to 55 rather shabbily dressed. I was at this phone booth having some fun with the Vallejo cops when he was walking by. When I hung the phone up, 
the damn thing began ringing, and that drew his attention to me and my car. Last Christmas, in that episode, the police were wondering as to how I could shoot and hit my victims in the dark. They did not openly state this, but implied this by saying it was a well-lit night, and I could see the silhouettes on the horizon. Bullshit. That area is surrounded by high hills and trees. What I did was tape a small pencil flashlight to the barrel of my gun. If you notice, in the center of the beam of light, if you aim it at a wall or a ceiling, you will see a black or dark spot in the center of the circle of light, about three to six inches across. When taped to a gun barrel, the bullet will strike exactly in the center of that black dot in the light. All I had to do was spray them, as if it was a water hose. There was no need to use the gun sights. I was not happy to see that I did not get the front page. Now let's talk about uh, Cecilia Ann Shepard and Brian Hartnell. It was a beautiful Saturday, September 27, 1969 in Napa County, California. Cecilia Shepard had spent the day with her classmate and friend, Brian Hartnell, packing up her belongings. She was transferring to UC at Riverside in October to continue her studies in music. Brian was a ruggedly good-looking pre-law student. Mm-hmm. And decides no, to... Ma'am. What? What? No, ma'am. What? Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. And decides to see what the small, delicate girl with beautiful blonde hair was doing later that evening. Brian decides to take Cecilia to one of his favorite spots where he used to go all the time out by the man-made lake, Berryessa. The lake is 25 miles long and 3 miles wide with tons of shoreline. This lake is surrounded by gentle hills and beautiful scenery. Just the perfect place to spend the evening with an old, close friend. It was about 4 p.m. when they arrived and Brian spread out the blanket for them where there were two large oak trees. They laid there for about an hour, chatting in a warm embrace. Other than the occasional boat, no one really passed by. The stretch of beach they were laying on was also fairly secluded by shrubbery, and it kind of helped isolate them. Just as the sun began to fall, Cecilia was laying on her stomach with her head on Brian's shoulder. She was facing the shoreline and could see a figure of a man a piece away from them. He was a stocky man with brownish hair. But as quick as she saw him, he vanished into a grove of trees. She mentioned to Brian that they had some company, but he couldn't see the man at the time. Brian tells her to keep watch as his back was to the approaching visitor. A few moments later, Cecilia sees the man reappear and begins stalking closer. As Cecilia lowers her head for just a moment to wipe a speck of dust from her eyes, she raises up and finds the figure gone again. At this point, she's becoming a bit alarmed. Brian isn't too concerned and doesn't bother to turn around and look for him. They both begin to hear the leaves rustling. The man reappears about 20 feet away. He's got a gun, Cecilia cries. He had circled them like a hunter stalking its prey. By this time, apparently under the concealment of the trees, the figure had donned what appeared to be a ceremonial black hood with a square on top and had slits for the eyes and nose. Two panels came down the front and back of his body, about to his hips. It was sleeveless. On the chest, there was an emblem stitched to it. He looked like a medieval ex- executioner. 
On his side, he had a holster that had a clothesline and a knife. The figure tells them he wants their money and their keys. He tells them that he wants the car to go to Mexico because he escaped a prison and shot and killed a guard there. The suspect told Brian to lie face down and for Cecilia to hog tie him up. Cecilia ties Brian loosely and then lays herself down for the suspect to tie her up. After he ties her up, he steps back and yells at the young couple, I'm going to have to stab you people. Now, he actually notices that she didn't tie Brian very tightly and reties him. So they're both tied, hogtied. Now, Brian starts freaking out and he's like, please stab me first. I'm a chicken and I can't stand to see her stabbed. I'll do just that. He kneels down and stabs Brian. After Brian collapses from the pain, the man turns to Cecilia, who is frantic at this point. He begins stabbing the tiny helpless girl over and over at least ten times. As she moves and tries to get away, she flips over onto her back. He stabs her in each breast, in the groin, and in the abdomen. She pleads with him to stop, but the more she writhed in pain, the more madly he stabbed and stabbed. Finally, the suspect stood up and walked away. He stood by the couple's car for a few minutes, crouched down, and then he got up, got in his vehicle, and drove away calmly. A fisherman happened upon the scene, and by that time, Cecilia, who was in awful shape, was able to help untie Brian, who tried to crawl up the hill for help. He was too weak and had lost too much blood. He only made it about 300 yards. The fisherman yells that they're going to find help. Shortly after, Brian can hear sirens in the distance. The cops and emergency crew said that Cecilia kept pleading with them to give her something for the pain. She had been stabbed a total of 24 times. No idea how she was still clinging to life. At 7.40 p.m., the phone rings at the Napa County Sheriff's Office. I want to report a murder. No, a double murder. Did they die? Did they die? The killer tells the dispatcher where they can find two laying, two teens laying, and leaves the receiver off the hook and walks away. They find shoe prints, size 10 and a half, and a note the killer had written on the side of their car. Vallejo, 122068, 7469, September 27th, 69, 630, by knife. On Monday, September 29th, 1969, Cecilia, surrounded by her family, passed away from multiple stab wounds to her back, chest, and abdomen. So did the guy die? Brian lives. Okay. She's like, okay. So he's probably still Ooh. alive now. He could be still yeah. alive now. Oh, yeah. Yep. Could he still be alive now? hmm Yeah. Now her next one is Paul Stein. Two weeks later, on October 11th, 1969... A white male passenger entered the cab driven by Paul Stein, requesting to be driven to Washington and Maple Streets in Presado Heights. At approximately 9.55 p.m., the passenger shot Stein once in the head with a 9mm handgun, took his wallet and his car keys, and tore away a section of his blood-stained shirt tail. Three teenagers across the street witnessed the incident and phoned the San Francisco PD while the crime was in progress. They observed the killer wiping the cab down before walking away towards the Presado one block to the north. 
The Stein murder was initially believed to be a routine robbery that had escalated into homicidal violence. However, on October 13th, the Chronicle received a new letter from the Zodiac that claimed credit for the killing and contained a torn section of Stein's bloody shirt as proof. The letter also included a threat about killing school children on a school bus. To do this, Zodiac wrote, just shoot out the front tire and then pick off the little kitties as they come bouncing out. This threat obviously caused mass panic and hysteria. Guards were placed at schools and drivers were given special instructions should a situation arise. There was also a bomb threat that was made. This caused thorough searches of the buses as they weren't sure if it was the Zodiac or just another person claiming to be. Better be safe than sorry. So at this point we have five people killed with two surviving. On Sunday, March 22, 1970, Kathleen Johns would bundle her 10-month-old baby up and head out of the house to visit her mother. If you tell me this baby dies, you're going to need to skip over it. A car pulls up behind her, honking and flashing their lights, so she pulls off the road. The man in the car hops out and tells her her tire's wobbling and he needs to tighten the lug nuts. After he does, he drives off. She pulls back on the road and just as she begins to speed up, her wheel almost flies off the car. The man backs up and offers a ride to the nearest gas station. He seemed like a nice man, she recalled. Clean cut, looked like a serviceman. Navy, maybe, she said. That's what I told you a minute ago, which you'd already, you'd turned the podcast off. I said, this guy's in the army or <laughs> Navy or he's, he's, he's military. Yeah. So, they passed several gas stations, and he didn't stop. So, at this point, I think they're driving like, they've drove like 90 minutes, and she's like trying to keep her cool. But he looks over her and says, you know you're going to die. You know I'm going to kill you. She made the decision right then and there, the next time that he slowed to a stop, she would grab her baby and jump out. She done exactly that the next time. He came to a stop. She laid. She took the baby. She ran off. She laid in a ditch on top of the baby to keep it from crying. The guy gets out and starts searching for her with a flashlight when a semi-truck comes by and slams on the brake because he sees the commotion. The suspect, freaking out, hops in his car and drives off. The semi-driver waits until a female motorist comes by because at this point, she ain't trusting no damn man. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, this female comes by, she picks up Kathleen and the baby, takes them to the police station. There in the police station, she's making a report, and she looks up, and she sees a sketch on the wall. That's him. She had just survived being picked up by the Zodiac. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <clears throat> now, I went over the five main uh, killings or attempted murders mm-hmm. that he's most famous for. They actually, he claims that he killed about 37 people. The police department estimates that he killed anywhere between 20 and 28 people. And in this book, uh, it's called The Zodiac, and it's by, uh, who did I say, Robert Gray Smith or whatever. It, it's got a list of the ones that they think are tied to him. It's very fascinating. Very good book. 
I highly recommend it. To who? A psychopath? Anybody. You recommend Anybody. it to psychopaths? It's a really good book. It's very, very well written. He's, no. he's really good. He no. interviewed these people. Like, these are first. It's, it's a great book. Mm-mm. So, now I want to talk about. You um, need to read the Bible. <laughs> I read the Bible sometimes. You need to read that more than what you're reading is. You're scaring me. <laughs> oh, Samantha. King James Version, sis. <laughs> Not New International. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. King James version. King James. Okay. So now I want to talk about... Now, there were several suspects. I think I read that they had like 2,500 suspects. Oh, horse. I promise you. However, there's a smaller list that they narrowed it down. However, I personally narrowed it down between two. These are the two that I so feel... So you're telling me right now that the professionals... Yeah. Had 2,500, and then they narrowed it down to what? To like seven. And then you? Narrowed it down to two. Narrowed it down to two. Yep. Okay. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. I'm a private detective. Call but me. We're, so we're only going to hear the two that you narrowed it down to, right? We are. Okay. Listen, and there's all kind of I don't internet. have time. Are you an internet sleuth? Is maybe. that what you are? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe I dabble in the dark web. Maybe you're... Don't say that. Not really. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> okay, go ahead. You you have narrowed it down. The I've, professionals got it to seven, but Elisa so got it to two. In the book, it says, you know, that they had... They ha- I mean, there was a lot of, like, shady characters. And I read, like, I think on Wiki, which you know how, like, credible Wiki can be. Mm-hmm. But I think they had about seven different suspects. And I read through them. And I was like, yeah, I could see how that would kind of raise an eye. But these two are the main suspects that I feel. And there's one. And I'll tell you my opinion after the end. Because I want to get your opinion. And Are we going to get to the paint splash on the wa- watch? Are we going to get to that? We're getting there. We're the- don't don't okay. let it go. I've, I've held on to it for an hour. Don't let it go. Are you ready? It's right here. Look, it's hold in my it. hand. Okay, you see hold it? it tight, baby. Look, there it is. Squeeze it. I got it. I got it. Okay. All right. Oh, I broke the watch. No, I'm Don't break the watch. <laughs> <laughs> it's evidence. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so, our first suspect, Arthur Lee Allen, was born in Honolulu, Hawaii on December 8th, 1933. He would have dark hair, maybe. He well, was a, no, that's not you. Dark curly what do you have dark wavy, hair? Wavy hair. He's born. No, that's no. Never mind. That's not right. That's not right. <laughs> what no. were you thinking there, Sugar? Well, I was thinking that all you know Hawaiian people they have dark hair, but just because you're born in Hawaii doesn't mean you're Hawaiian. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So never mind. Mm-hmm. He was a professional student who was extremely intelligent <clears throat> and strong swimmer and a wrestler. He was a slender, good-looking guy back in the day. His mother preferred his brother, Ron, over him. Eventually, Allen would enlist in the Navy in 1956. Mm -hmm. In June 1960, Allen began working at Hemet Mental Hospital, only 20 miles from Riverside, which is where Sherry Jo would die. June 1961, he would become a, a psychiatric teacher, and he got quite friendly with a convicted murderer who had been jailed for seven years. Oh, I'm sorry, for several, not seven years, several years. He later said that they had exchanged samples of codes. From 1959 to 1963, Lee was still going to college to obtain a teaching degree, and he shared a rented house with a couple of his friends. Santo Paul Panzarella, 
Donald Lee Cheney, and his brother Ron. Now let's jump ahead to July 15th of 1971. This is after these murders and these killings. Yeah, because the murders took place in 1969, right? right? So this is after. Okay. So July 15th of 1971, a tip comes in. Detective Bill Armstrong and Dave Toshi left to meet the tipsters. As soon as they arrive and get out of the car, these two guys give the name Arthur Lee Allen. The tipsters are Panzarella and Chaney. Chaney recalls a hunting trip that they had taken together. Chaney said that he had some weird, unsettling conversations with Allen during these trips. So this is his roommate? These are his roommates back in the day. Um, he, ta- he would talk about death and like what-if scenarios. And on this particular trip, it was New Year's Day in the afternoon. Allen brought up a book that he had read in the 11th grade. That he really, really liked. The Most Dangerous Game. He said Alan had asked him if he'd ever thought about hunting people. He said Alan asked him, or I'm sorry, he said it would be a good sport to hunt people. They chatted more and Alan mentioned that he may want to open his own business as a private eye. Well, Cheney told him he didn't really have the training to do that. And Alan told him, well, maybe I can create my own business by being a criminal. If I was here, if I was, here is what I would do, he said. And he proceeded to tell Chaney that he would go out to Lover's Lane and seek out victims at night. Maybe attach a flashlight to a gun and shoot them. I mean, he literally is telling exactly what. How did you not narrow it down to one person? He said that he would use the light as an aiming device. Elisa, this is the guy who did it. It would enable him to walk right up and shoot them. Elisa. No motive, and it would be difficult for the cops to catch him. Elisa. He then told Cheney he could even write confusing letters to the police to harass them and lead them astray. Okay. And I would sign the Zodiac. Elisa. (laughs) Samantha. (laughs) I mean, this is the guy. Cheney asked why he'd use that name. It was childish, and Alan became emotional and really upset. Cheney said earlier in the day, he had driven him out to Lake Herman and pointed to a roadside turnout. He didn't say anything about why it was significant. Cheney later finds out that's where the two teens were slain. Elisa. It was all very bizarre. Their description and everything even matched, Cheney said. None of that information was in the paper, right, with him using the flashlight and all that stuff. I mean, I don't want to keep saying Elisa, but Elisa. (laughs) All evidence was circumstantial. Other people also believed that Alan was the Zodiac. His sister-in-law, Sheila, believed he was the Zodiac. She noticed a paper in his hand once very similar to that that the Zodiac had used. See, they didn't when have... I'm saying paper, I'm talking about like the feel and like the, the type of paper that it was and written And they didn't on. have the DNA testing and stuff back then, right? No, that wasn't I mean, they, they did. They had fing- oh, sorry. They oh, had, she's so mad. They had fingerprints, <laughs> though, right? I mean, they... Yeah. Go ahead. I I can't wait to hear about this other guy, but we're still on Alan, aren't we? Yep. Okay. So when asked what the lines and symbols were, he replied to her that it was the work of an insane person. She even stated that one time she seen a bloody knife laying on the seat of his car and his reply, I used it to kill chickens. It's chicken blood. Alan's behavior was very erratic as well. Alan also had mommy issues. Could this be why the suspect was more brutal with the females? Mm. Oh, he was, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. 
He always stabbed him, shot him more and everything. Mm. Now, let's talk. So, in 2021, we're going to talk about Gary Francis Post. Okay. So, in 2021, Thomas J. Colbert and his casebreakers team. Okay, hold on. Yes. Is this a deathbed confession? Because these people always are like, I'm done. I'm going to admit to something that I didn't do. Not a deathbed. Okay. So the case breakers team is made up of former cops, military, intelligent officers, and journalists. It's, it's, and they try to go and they try to solve like cold cases. Mm -hmm. So in 2021, Thomas Colbert and his case breakers team announced they had solved the mystery of the Zodiac killer. Their infamous murderer, they claimed, was none other than Gary Francis Post, who died in 2018. According to Fox News, the case breakers found a number of significant clues, which they say link Post to the Zodiac Killer. One clue involves scars on Post's forehead, which the Air Force veteran got from a car crash in Clinton, Indiana, in 1959. The case breakers point out that sketches of the Zodiac Killer have similar scars. And I have pictures, and I'm going to let you see them. Let me see them. I'm going to let you see them. So, right here's Post. Okay. And this, these, this is the sketch of the Zodiac. So, this was when he was young, and this is him older. I don't, I don't see any scars. I don't see. All I see is, I see forehead, I see wrinkles. I see forehead wrinkles. But look in the one where he's younger. Okay. I can see like a dot, like a, you know, like the black dot. I can see that there. And on the... The drawing, but not on this old man. I don't see it on the old man. So. Oh, I lost my place. Unless you tell me that they found a written confession in the same handwriting and everything from this dude right here. It's the other guy. I don't care if it's circumstantial or not. Just hold on. Okay. There is photographic proof, as a former FBI agent put it, of irrefutable scars on our zodiac's forehead spotted by three witnesses and observing a cop or and an observing and an observing cop then later passed on to the 1969 sketch artist the case breakers also found connections to post within the zodiac killer's cryptic notes the murderer sent four ciphers to police during his 1960s murder spree, mm-hmm. only two of which had been deciphered. And the investigative team says that if you remove Gary Francis Post's name from one of the ciphers, it spells out a new message. Now, I couldn't find copies of this new message. So you've got to know Gary's full name in order to decipher these anagrams. So hold on. Go back. Rewind. You're, what did you just say about a new... So they okay. said that it does a new message, but they didn't tell you what the new message said? Correct. Okay. Either they don't want the people to know it because they're tr- still trying well, the, to figure out who it is. Well, the FBI... The FBI does not believe that it was Gary. And neither does Samantha. I mean, I don't either, but... It wasn't... It, no. So... It was either... But I had to do Gary because he's the most recent, and this is... Just, just listen. Well... Okay. This is, this is, I'm listening. So, Casebreakers team member Jen Bulkuch, I don't know, a former Army I know you don't counterintelligent know. agent, told Fox News, I just don't think there's any other way anybody would have figured it out. What's more is the case breakers also think that the Zodiac Killer had six, not five victims. 
They claim they found evidence linking Post to the 1966 murder of Sherry Jo Bates in Riverside, California. After Bates's murder, police found a broken, paint-splattered wristwatch at the scene that they determined had been purchased at a military base. Okay. Hold- Since Post was a house painter with a military background who happened to have gone for a checkup at the March Air Force Base Hospital just 15 minutes away from where Bates was murdered, the casebreakers believe the broken wristwatch links him to the crime. Okay, so you have two murderers here is what you've got. You've got the guy who was the Zodiac killer, and then you've got this dude who, who killed, killed the, Cherry who, Joe Bates. Who killed Bates. These are two different murders. But police also found size 10 and a half footprints at the scene that match the other Zodiac killer footprints. So I want to I want to say when they found footprints don't make a murder. When they found the footprints Debunked. at the scene, Debunked. they were able to pull an emblem off, and mm-hmm. they're called like wing something. It's in the book, but they were able to trace, and it's a type of like they only made like one hundred thirty thousand of these boots because they were like army or navy issued or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, but this print matched the ones that were at the scene. With with the two teams. Okay, but just like I said earlier, you said at one point that the Zodiac killer, he shot that girl while she was running. Mm-hmm. Have you ever tried to shoot a gun or a pistol while somebody's running? Yeah, it's really or hard. Or while you're... I tried to do it one day. Uh, I was walking towards a target. I was walking. You were toward, running after Scott? Yeah, I was running. <laughs> but I was running... I was walking towards a target and couldn't hit anything. Nothing at all. Could you imagine You're trying to You're also not military, though. These guys That's are trained. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Military guys are trained. So you're telling me that there's military boots at both places because both guys are military guys. Mm-hmm. They are. You have two different killers here. This is a picture. Killer. That guy looks like he's a killer. This guy. I mm-hmm. agree. He looks super and shady. And he doesn't look anything like that. He dude. doesn't look anything like that. No. I think... So you've got this guy. Yeah. This is so Arthur me, Lee Allen. Okay, so Arthur Lee Allen is a chunky little dude. He's got a, what I call a skullet. You know what a skullet is? You know, it's like a, he's bald on top, but hair around his ears. Yeah. It's like a skullet. A skullet. Yeah, he's got okay. a skullet. Okay. <laughs> he's got, he's got people, there's people laughing. Because <laughs> that's what it is. Look, Jennifer, tell me that's not a skullet. It's a skullet. Okay, it's a skullet. So this dude has a skull. He looks like he's got a white V-neck t-shirt on, which is also a no. But he's got double chin. He's super chunky. He's got brown eyes. The drawing of the guy's got glasses on, super slender face, all of his hair. He doesn't have this skull cap. Well, the glasses, I think the glasses were just part of his disguise. I don't even think that. Oh, we're not working with Clark Kent here, Elisa. I don't, I don't, I I don't think. Hold on, I have my glasses on. Hold on, are you ready? Are you ready? Wait, look, look, I'm taking them off. Who am I? You're the murderer. <laughs> I don't think, I think, and the reason I think he used the glasses is because in this book, when you're reading. Were they sunglasses? He wore sunglasses over his executioner hood. Did you see that? On that one, I did. I did see that. Okay, he but wore sunglasses over that one, but the Brian rest of said he could see another pair of glasses underneath, mm-hmm. too. Okay. So, were, was he like, did he really need glasses? Or were, was it just a ruse? Surely to God, he needed glasses if he had two pairs on. Like, I don't know. You're going to double layer your glasses as a disguise? That's going to stand out more than anything. Well, you would think. Look for the dude with two pairs of glasses on. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's not the same guy. You've but, got two murders. 
also the guy they estimated because they were able to pull a heel print Mm -hmm. which indicated when they done like when they done testing Mm -hmm. like they would have an officers of different weights stand beside the heel Mm -hmm. they estimated him to be anywhere from 200 220 pounds who's this guy right here the guy that killed the people so you tell me which one looks like they're 200 220 pounds okay so hold on a second the chunky guy with the skullet, the one I'm pointing That's to Arthur right Lee. here, you're going to put on the website, Arthur yep. Lee. Mm-hmm. He's the one that I feel like he killed everybody. Okay. okay. I feel like that too. Okay. You're telling me that this dude right here weighs 200, 220 pounds? No, ma'am. That is, that is 275 and up if I've ever seen it in my life. <laughs> Are you discriminating against I'm his not double discri- chin? I'm not discriminating against him. I'm telling you that dude is heavy. So, what gets me, what hangs me up on this one is when you read the book, they actually pulled the stamps that the killer licked on these Zodiac letters. The DNA on the stamps did not match Arthur Lee Allen. But who's to say that he didn't have somebody else lick the stamp? What? You're not gonna lick. You're not gonna lick the stamp. You could do a sponge and water, just a dab of water. I'm just saying, just a sponge and water. That, yep. That's not that's true. No. I think, I, I agree. I think it's Arthur Lee Allen. I don't think this guy. Is this Arthur Lee Allen? Is this he is still Arthur, alive? Mm, I don't know. Pause. Pause. We're Google. Okay. So I Googled uh, Arthur Lee. Is it Arthur? Arthur Lee Allen. Yeah. Arthur Lee Allen. And he is dead. He passed away in 1992. But he has some previous arrest. Mm. One was for disturbing the Peace, and the other one was for child molestation. Child molestation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I knew that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I knew that. So, yes, he's dead. That's your Zodiac killer. Debunked. Like I said 20 minutes ago. Debunked. Debunked. Yeah. There I think. Um, and that other dude there, he killed the I can girl. see. I can see the resemblance between those. Mm-hmm. This looks nothing like him, I feel I like. I can't wait for you to put this on there. On lawn. I mean, that that's not the same person at all. You could go ahead and throw a picture of me up there too, and yeah, and I just, that's how different these I don't guys feel look. like. Just, they look. The, this guy, I can kind of see it a little bit with the wrinkles and the shape of the nose and his mouth. Yeah, I can. I can, can kind of see, see. I can kind of see Gary Post resembling him more, but I just don't think he's the killer. Mm-mm. Just don't. No, he's not. He is a killer. He is a killer. He he's might, not. He might be a killer, but he no, is not he's a ki- the he's, killer. He's a killer, but he's not the killer. The we're Zodiac killer. Yeah, he's not the Zodiac killer. So, well, look at you. Look did, at that. Did the Zodiac killer? I look know. at us. I know. Look at us. Mm-hmm. So, let us know what you think, guys. Let us know who, which one, and I'll post the pictures and the sketches. And after you listen to this, let us know who you think the Zodiac really is. Um, email us at watchfordearpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at watchfordearpodcast. Like and follow the Facebook page at watchfordearpodcast. Be sure to show to share the love by following and subscribing on Spotify or wherever you listen. And please share, share, share our podcast with your friends because we love you. So, yeah, y'all be safe and, and watch, watch for, for deer, deer and, and murders and serial killers. <laughs>